Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome back. Before I read our gospel reading tonight, um, I just want to say briefly a little bit about what we're doing. Um, maybe someone's already said this, so forgive me if I'm being repetitive, but as you may know, if you've been around at all this year, we typically devote Tuesday evenings to um, something more on the side of a Bible study than, uh, than like a sermon, sort of hybridized with worship. Um, but during certain seasons of the church year, such as this, which is Advent season, we often will take a kind of interlude um, and enjoin our attention um, with the, the larger attention of the church throughout the world um, by devoting these evenings to lectionary readings, um, which are these prescribed readings for the particular season of the year. And so, as you may have guessed, we're in the season of Advent, which is a season of preparation and anticipation uh, for the coming of Christ at Christmas. Um, so with all of that said, I invite you to stand now for this reading from the Gospel of Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be, to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the gospel of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, unlike our Catholic and Orthodox sisters and brothers, we Protestant Christians tend not to pay a whole lot of attention to the Virgin Mary. She shows up a little during Advent and Christmas and nativity scenes and Christmas cards and even, as tonight, occasionally in church readings. Although this is probably due as much to our sentimentality as it is to Mary's unavoidable significance in the scriptures that lie at the heart of this season. Despite our typical inattention to her, the Virgin Mary is in fact the first and one of the most sufficient exemplars of Christian faith and discipleship that God has provided for us in the scriptures. She is moreover the most vivid narrative symbol we have for the nature of the church as such, for most of us, Mary's person and story are an untapped trove for theological reflection and perhaps 
more urgently for our spiritual practice. In light of tonight's reading, Mary's story reminds us, among other things, that during Advent, we're called not just to expect the coming, not just to expect the coming of Jesus, but we are called in some sense, like Mary, to give birth to Jesus. When we hear Gabriel announce, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, we should hear that word, you, as addressed not just to Mary, but to ourselves, individually and collectively. In Advent, we are preparing to welcome Jesus, not just as a gift from Mary's womb, but to welcome Jesus into ourselves so that our own persons and our community can become sites in the world where his presence takes on flesh. We do this in no small part by being transformed into Jesus' image, by becoming increasingly like Jesus is. This fact is hinted at analogically in the shape of Mary's reply to the angel Gabriel. Let it be done with me, according to thy word. On the one hand, this process of transformation has to be deliberate. We must decide to obey Jesus, who tells us, for example, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or Paul, who says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Giving birth to Christ, in other words, is something chosen and effortful. We have to try to root out sinful patterns in our lives, to starve the appetites of our old self, and to obey and imitate Jesus in our deeds. And yet, on the other hand, there are details in, Mary, in Mary's exchange with Gabriel, not to mention in our own experience of attempts we make at personal transformation that should discipline our expectations and our posture toward our own attempt at becoming more Christ-like. And so I actually want to devote a great deal of, of what I have to share with you tonight to telling you a story, uh, a recent story, about my own efforts to be a little bit more like Jesus in just one comparatively unimportant part of my life, but nonetheless, uh, a place in my life where I have made a concerted effort to be more like Jesus. Um, this is a story about me trying to be a little bit more Christ-like uh, as a bow hunter um, of white-tailed deer. Um, and I'll tell the story by, by telling you about a conversation I had with a friend of mine this last Friday afternoon. So this past Friday afternoon, like lots of afternoons, um, I was in the car line at Shudrant Elementary waiting to pick up my kids. This is a place where I, I, have, uh, I catch up on a lot of correspondence and phone calls. And I called up a good friend of mine who lives in, in Tennessee named Ben. And I just said, hey, I need you to help me process through some things that I've been sort of sorting through uh, in my life. And uh, what I wanted to tell him about was some of the things that transpired around something really great that had happened just a couple days before that, which was that an evening earlier that week, um, I had killed with a bow on public land uh, a, a three-and-a-half-year-old buck. Um, and I was reflecting with my friend Ben that at this moment, you know, after I've, I've done this rather substantial thing, if you're a bow hunter, you know that's a big deal. Um, if not, you can just take my word for it. It's a, it's a really big F deal. Um, especially in North Louisiana. Uh, anyway, um, 
But I was reflecting with my friend Ben that uh, I suddenly found myself in this place that I had accomplished most of my major goals uh, for the hunting season. I mean, there are probably lots of people that don't have like major goals for their hunting season, but for me, I was like, I had very conscious, like written down in a few places, kind of like, this is what I'm trying to do this hunting season. I was, you know, trying to be intentional about it. And um, I had killed a buck on public land. I mean, any buck on public land, that was like one of my major goals, was to kill a buck on public land with my bow. Uh, and not only had I killed a buck on public land with my bow, but I had killed a relatively, from, a relatively mature buck on public land, a three-and-a-half-year-old, which is harder to kill than a younger deer. And that's a milestone that uh, I had not expected to reach this season uh, in terms of like the, the maturity of that deer. And finding myself there, I also was realizing, at this place where I had accomplished that big goal, I was also realizing that I had met some, uh, some of my more abstract goals for the hunting season. Broadly speaking, I I went into this hunting season wanting to resist the deep propensity that hunting has um, to be a really selfish activity. Um, If any of you hunt or have been around hunters uh, in in your family, perhaps, you know that as wonderful as hunting is, it also can become this this thing where there's a lot of weird stinginess and possessiveness and selfishness, even like lying about stuff. And um, I, I saw that tendency in myself to towards selfishness and hunting, and I wanted to resist it being something, if I was going to be this passionate about it, as I am, I didn't want it to be something that was selfish, and so I was going to deliberately try to resist the selfishness of hunting, and so some of the ways that I had planned to do that was I was going to prioritize um, taking my son hunting as often as I could, who's eight years old, um, helping people scout their land and, and, and figure out spots to hunt in their own places, um, and, and perhaps most of all in terms of time consumption, um, I wanted to teach some people who really had never hunted before how to hunt and to take some new and aspiring hunters, take as many people hunting as I could um, this season. And that last part especially requires a more significant kind of effort um, than you might think. Because, not just because it's like a lot of work to teach someone how to shoot a bow and how to climb a tree in, in these really like elaborate ways that I climb trees to hunt, hunt deer on public land, um, but because you give up your own, a lot of your own opportunities to kill deer whenever you're doing everything you can to give someone else an opportunity to kill their first deer. Not to mention the fact that, uh, you know, you never know what you're going to get with these people who you're trying to teach how to hunt. You never know, like, how really bought in they actually are, um, how seriously they're going to take it. So, I mean, like, some guys, like Pete, will tell you that they, they, they definitely really want to hunt, and you'll, like, spend time, like, taking him <laughs> to, to shoot and, like, climbing trees with him in the off season. And he's like, yeah, I definitely want to hunt. But then like every time you ask him to actually go hunting, he's always got something else conveniently that's going on. (laughs) I don't know. You got something going on this Saturday too, Pete. So I'm just saying. Anyway, uh, or with the Keen, for example, who I've been working on for two years, who I have to, to his credit, I mean, when I ask a Keen to go hunting, like he usually is, is game to go hunting. We actually go. Um, so after two years uh, of taking a keen bow hunting, we finally, over Thanksgiving break, we hunted three times. Three times over Thanksgiving break? Yes. And so uh, after a lot of hunting trips, we're like, we, just, we saw no deer for like a year and a half. Over Thanksgiving break, we go hunting, and we find ourselves in situations where we're like in a pile of deer. Like there's just booty tons of deer everywhere. <laughs> And they're not like far away, like they're like inside 10 yards, like less than from me to that, I'm not joking, like to that pew. And like, I'm in a tree here and Akeen is in a tree like here and there's a deer just there and there and there. And I'm like, what is he doing? 
why isn't he shooting this deer? Or like later on, the next time we hunted, uh, one evening, I was, we were in separate places. And I was, you know, I saw no deer whatsoever. Um, and I'm kind of like walking back to the truck, sort of dejected. And I get there, and Akeen's already sitting there, just sort of like in a daze on the back of the truck. And I was like, I just assumed he hadn't seen any deer either. And I was like, how did it go? And he was like, man, that place is lousy with deer. And he, he proceeds to tell me stories of like deer just like traipsing in and like going to sleep in front of him. <laughs> And you all, you all have to understand, like, I've been trying hard to get a keen opportunity to kill deer. And I'm like, where's the deer then, dude? Like, what, what are we doing out here? Like, I didn't say any of that, but now I am. Because, anyway. So, you never know what you're going to get. It's a lot of effort, and you don't necessarily know what the payoff is going to be. Don't get me wrong. I love spending time with these people. Uh, so, but it, it, it's effortful to decide to try to be selfless in the way that you go hunting. Um... So all I have to say, I, I, but here I am talking to my friend Ben, and I've killed a three-and-a-half-year-old buck, and I'm also thinking about all these different times I've taken these different people hunting, et cetera, and I'm like, you know what? I've kind of done a decent job setting out what I, doing what I set out to do is to try to be more selfless in the way that I hunt this year. Um, I'd set a pretty high bar for myself, but here I am, first week of December, talking to my buddy Ben, and I've done it. And to top it off, I was telling my friend Ben how grateful I was that on the night that I had killed that three-and-a-half-year-old buck, that my two hunting buddies um, had both come through to be present with me in some really generous ways to share that experience with me. And as I'm, I'm sort of, this is all leading up to me telling Ben something I needed to process through. But at this point in the story, he's kind of like, what are we processing through? Like, why can't you just be effing happy? Like, <laughs> what are we talking about? This is great. This all sounds really great to me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, just hang on. So the thing is, with that last part, um, with the, the, the really selfless generosity of these two hunting buddies of mine um, on the night that I would killed that buck, um, it had kind of unexpectedly revealed the persistence of selfishness in me, despite my best efforts. These two dudes, both of whom have families and have more than enough on their plates to do, neither of whom were hunting with me at the time when I shot this buck, they substantially interrupted their lives in order to share this experience with me. One of them um, left a family meal to, at his in-law's house, not to mention, um, to, to blood trail and gut and drag uh, this deer, which I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but he was a pretty good one, so he's pretty heavy, about 400 yards <laughs> out of the woods. The other, my other hunting buddy, he was working at the time, but as I'm driving back, I have about an hour drive back to the house. As I'm driving back home, he's getting off work around 9 o'clock, and he calls me, and he's like, hey, man, I'm on my way to your house. I'm picking up a six-pack, which I don't drink a lot of beers. But when you kill a buck, this is the one occasion where I'm like, yes, that's an occasion you should celebrate with some beers. Um, and he's coming to my house. I mean, his whole family is already asleep. Instead of going home to his family, he comes to my house, not just to help me process the meat, but more importantly, to make sure that this milestone is properly celebrated. And he stays there uh, to hang out with me and to celebrate and to, to begin processing this deer. And as he was leaving at like 1.30 in the morning, I was like, what time do you have to get up in the morning? What time do you have to be at work? And he was like, uh, like I got a class to teach at 6 a.m. And I was like, dude, what the heck is wrong with you? And he was like, dude, this is only gonna happen once. You're gonna get your first public land deer. Like I had to be here for this. And so I felt myself moved by the generosity of both of these buddies of mine. 
the generosity of these actions, uh, it moved me. And, and I even found myself wondering, like, I don't know if I would have done those things for these guys. And, and I wanted in some way to return a gift of like kind and of equal worth to these hunting buddies of mine. And the most generous gift I know how to give, hunting buddies, is the gift of the knowledge of, of deer and specific places where to kill them. Uh, all right, specifically on public land. You gotta understand, and this is a lot of deer hunting talk, but bear with me, it's going somewhere. You gotta understand, I don't just hunt deer during deer season. I mean, not, just to be clear, I don't shoot deer anytime except for deer season. But like, this is something I do year round. Like when I have time off in August, or May or whatever, like usually what I'm gonna do is go walk around public land and scout it and figure out what the deer are doing in that place and spend time and energy planning for December so that I know on what wind, where and how I might be able to kill X, Y, and Z deer in this particular piece of land, all right? You're nodding your head, you must know someone like that, yes? No, you're distracting with me, all right, cool. <laughs> I was just trying to be like, I'm not the only one that does this, all right, there are other people like that. So this is the thing I pour a lot of time and gasoline and energy into. And a lot of my efforts over the course of this last year have revolved around one specific piece of public land and one specific buck, the largest buck I've ever seen on public land that I almost had an opportunity to shoot last year. And I've thought about that deer a lot in that encounter and I've, I've figured him out to an extent on this one particular place. And so for one of these two guys, the gift that I gave him was to take him hunting in one of the bedding areas of that buck, one of the places that like, I've known since October, I could kill this buck there. I took him and I put him in the tree in the exact spot and that buck came in and he almost shot it, all right? Um, this is a deer that like, I've been thinking about for forever and I was like, I'm giving it to you. I mean, I'm not literally, it's not mine, you know what I'm saying? But like, <laughs> I've worked really hard to figure this deer out. And I'm like, here it is. And sure enough, man, that thing came in, I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> he saw the deer, didn't get to shoot it. The other friend, last night he was like, going to hunt, he was, he was like, where do I go hunt on this particular piece of land? And there's one other place that I have not touched it all season that I know, it's the place that I saw this deer last year. And I've been waiting for, the, for a west wind to hunt it. And there's a west wind that was coming in this morning. And I, I couldn't hunt because I had to write this sermon. And I was like, I'm gonna send you the GPS coordinates of where to go. And I sent him the coordinates for that particular tree. Um, Again, just being like, like I, don't know, I don't know how to repay you, friend, for helping me drag this deer out of the woods except to give you this, this thing that I've thought about for forever. So I did these things, these acts of selflessness, in, in an attempt to try to respond to the selflessness of my friends. But afterward, I found myself wondering, should I have done that? Because I really did give them an opportunity that I wanted for myself? And would I regret it if they killed that buck? I even found myself thinking more grotesque thoughts like, maybe both of these guys are, are really just, their generosity for me isn't actually genu toward me isn't actually genuine. But maybe they're just kind of playing the long game because they know I work so hard at scouting and they're just kind of scamming me and they know that they're really nice to me, that I'm also this kind of soft-hearted guy, and I'm probably going to respond with some overly you know, generous thing, because I feel guilty about not being as good as they are. And, um, and then they'll get all my sweet spots to go kill deer. More embarrassingly, 
I found myself thinking, did I almost catch on fire? I felt it a little bit. I was like, anyway. More embarrassingly, I found myself thinking, y'all are going to tell me if I catch on fire. Okay. I found myself thinking, do they really appreciate these gifts? Do they really understand the literal blood, sweat, and tears? All of those things, all those boxes are checked for these spots. The literal blood, sweat, and tears, the hours and days and miles of boot rubber that I've spent finding those places, those opportunities to try to shoot that buck. And as I'm having these obviously selfish and also insulting to my friends kinds of questions, these thoughts in my mind that just sort of, that take this wonderful gift that my friends gave me and they just, just sort of trample upon it. Um, as I'm having those kinds of thoughts, um, I'm like, huh, that's just not, that's not the way a selfless person thinks. And I begin to think, have I in the midst of all this effort to be more, a more selfless hunter, um, have I really wanted to be selfless? Like, have I been looking to God to, to change me into a more selfless hunter? Because if there's any place in my own life that my faith falters, it's in believing that God can or will change me. Sometimes it's easier for me to believe God will bring about change in someone else's life than in mine. To be honest, I grow weary not just of my own sin, but I grow weary of hoping that God will do anything to substantially change my sin. I know that my baptism is supposed to mean that I'm a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. And I even preach on that with some frequency. And yet often in the privacy of my own heart, I covertly sidle away from those truths. Perhaps even more darkly, maybe the reason I don't risk believing God will actually change me, or believing that the character of Christ can be conceived inside of me, is that I'm not so sure that I want to be changed. I fear what I might lose if God did actually bring about the transformation that I so desperately need. Perhaps I don't really want to become a more selfless bow hunter. I just want, in some bizarrely and theologically distorted way, to appease a kind of imaginary, made-up God that's not really the God that we worship, but to sort of appease that God through the appearance of selflessness so that I can have what I really want, which is not selflessness, but in this case, to kill an even bigger buck than the one I already killed. Not to mention that all of this struggle is taking place in the admittedly unimportant sphere of deer hunting. What about those arenas of my life where my sin and brokenness are far more consequential and where I may not even be trying as intentionally to be rid of that sin or to do better? What about my anger, my well-established habit of losing my temper and yelling at the people closest to me when I'm weary and tired? What about my habit of, of sharing my own wounds of guilt and shame with my kids and putting it on them? What about my preference to be distracted and diverted by work or some form of entertainment rather than to be fully present to my family? What about the frequency with which I lapse into unintentionality in my relationship with my wife? So the more, here I'm having this conversation with my friend Ben in the car line, all right, that's where we are. This, this is all the subterranean goings on of that conversation. 
The more I peel back the layers of what I take to what I at one moment took to be significant efforts on my part to try to become more selfless, the more I peel back the layers of what seemed to be good intentions, the more it's dawning on me that my very best attempt at holiness is honestly pretty pathetic and suspect. And in answer to Ben's question, like, what are we talking about here? What are we trying to process? I was like, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm like, I'm stretching out past what I actually am, but nothing's changing. And Ben uh, it was sort of an athlete at one time in his life. He, he likes sports metaphors, and so I was like, and we both ran cross country in high school. So I was like, you know, it's like when you're a cross country runner, and you're like, I want to break five minutes in my mile time. And so you start running like a person that has broken five minutes in their mile time. You start doing the workouts that those people do, and you start trying to keep pace with them on runs at practice. And you might do the run, right? But you don't feel like those people feel when they run. You're still not the runner that they are. I did these selfless things, but here I am, and all I've got to show for it is a deeper appreciation for how uber selfish I am. I'm attempting to do virtuous things, but I'm not myself a virtuous person. My actions are different than they were, but it seems that I myself am not changed. The more I attempt to be selfless, the more I'm confronted with the depth and deceitfulness of my own sin and brokenness. But to the point where at some point, I literally was just like, dang man, this is why Jesus had to come. Like, seriously, because I can't be a selfless bow hunter. Like, that's why Jesus had to come. And on the one hand, that's enough of a realization to get out of this self-reflection that I was doing in the car line with my friend. But even that eventually leads to another question, which is like, is there any significance at all to my attempts at holiness? Does it matter at all? Is it, what, what is the significance? Because it doesn't seem like Surely the takeaway is not just like, so don't try to be selfless, because your efforts are screwed. <laughs> like, what is the significance? Like, I know my righteousness is as, is as filthy rags, as we learned, some of us in churches growing up. Like, I've learned that, but, but what of these efforts? And Ben replied by telling me about this reflection that he had just read on St. John of the Cross's poem, uh, the Dark Night of the Soul. This is Ben's style. He's always like, well, this saint says such and such, such and such thing. And so he sent me this, this chapter uh, on St. John of the Cross's poem, The Dark Night of the Soul. And it's a reflection on exactly this thing, on our, uh, our irritation with the realization of how little our effort does to bring about the change in our life that we want to see. And this is an actual quote from, from John of the Cross. He says this, Many make great resolutions and plans, but as they are not humble and have no distrust of themselves, the more resolutions they make, the further they fall and the more annoyed they become. They do not have the patience to wait till God gives them what they seek when he so desires. Let me read the last part again. They do not have the patience to wait till God gives them what they seek when he so desires. So per usual, now I'm almost crying in the car line as I'm talking to Ben about this. Per usual, my issue is impatience. Not just selfishness, but impatience. And note here that John the Cross isn't knocking, making resolutions and plans. 
But what he's challenging is the way that we put so much confidence in our own efforts to accomplish those changes and resolutions. The discovery that our sin, and this is one of the, I'm told by people like Ben who read John on the Cross, one of the really significant things about the dark night of the soul, what it really is in many ways, is exactly the discovery of our sin and that we by ourselves are powerless to change it. So the discovery that our sin is worse than we thought and that our attempts to fix it aren't doing very much is not in and of itself a bad thing. The real significance, the only possible significance of my effort to be more selfless is that it can, if I will let it, become a posture of waiting for the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. The significance of all my trying is that it can lead me into the practice of waiting. Once Gabriel has said all he's got to say to Mary and has left her, Mary has nothing to do but wait upon the coming of the Holy Spirit and then upon the birth of her son. More deeply, the significance of realizing my efforts, the insufficiency of my efforts, is remembering that what I need is not just healing and transformation, which I do need that, and I want it. But what I need is not just to be a better person than I already am. What I need is simply God himself. So that even if the Lord were to come to me and say, as we know he said to the Apostle Paul, no, I'm not going to change this problem in your life. I'm not going to deliver you from this sin. I'm not going to remove this thorn in your flesh. Even if Jesus were to come to me and say that, even then, my waiting is not in vain. For though I remain unchanged in that facet of my soul and in that aspect of my brokenness, the Lord has come to me. He is with me. In Advent, God comes. The Father comes to Mary through his word brought by the angel Gabriel. The Holy Spirit comes to Mary so that she might conceive and bear a son. Finally, the Son of God comes to the world through Mary's womb. In Advent, God comes. We do not bring him to ourselves. God comes to us. Mary can consent to the Lord's invitation, but she cannot be Jesus. She cannot cause Jesus to become enfleshed in her womb. Only God can give the, the gift of Jesus' own self to us and to others through us. Like Mary, we can accept the Lord's summons to welcome Jesus. We can consent to be a sight in the world where his presence becomes enfleshed. But we cannot make ourselves be like Jesus. We cannot save anyone, and we cannot save or heal ourselves. It has to be God coming to us. And yet this does not mean that our efforts are futile. Rather, it is precisely in the midst of trying 
that we come to realize just how urgently we need the gift upon which we are waiting during the season of Advent. For when we come to the paltry limit of our power, when we realize how pathetically inadequate our effort is, then we have come to that moment in Mary's story in which she asks Gabriel, how can this be? The question turns us, like Mary, expectantly to the Holy Spirit and invites us into a posture of waiting, waiting for God to do what only God can do, to conceive in we ragamuffin sinners the very presence and person of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Amen.